Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. This is part two of our series on Purim Cotton, where you describe the different miracles that are parallel to the Purim that we all celebrate every year in our Jewish history. Last week, we covered Cairo and we covered Moscow. Where are we flying to next? So there are three this week, Mm. um, and each one gives a small window as to how lives were led. And perhaps the most curious of them is Prague in 1620, because essentially the threat wasn't aimed at the Jews. There was no individual enemy, no anti-Jewish decree, no individual Jewish hero, as we see from the account, which is preserved in the Megillah. In fact, there are virtually no names at all yet. It was important enough that the Rov of Prague, the famous Teisvis Yontif, Rob Yontif Lippmann Heller, composed Selichus, which were recited by the community for at least the next century and a half until their expulsion by Maria Theresa, for those who've listened to the 18th century Prague series, parts three and four that we brought about six months ago. What was the connection to Purim? Well, the community was in danger. But as we will see, there was something to be achieved by creating this Purim, which changes it from simply being a threat to the Jews, which is averted, to something larger. The story is as follows. In May of 1618, a group of Protestant rebels stormed Prague Castle, which was owned, controlled by the Catholic Habsburg Emperor, and they take hold of two royal administrators and their secretary, and the rebels get rid of them by throwing them out the window, which actually is a particular pastime in Prague for eliminating rivals and actually uh, created a word in the English language, defenestration. I guess it's technically a French word from the word fenêtre. And they drop these three people over 70 feet from the royal tower into the valley below. Although, strangely, all three of them survived. So the technique needs work, obviously. (laughs) And the outcome of this little escapade is that the tensions that had been building for decades between Protestants and Catholics erupted. Both sides now go on to raise an army, and in 1619, when a new Habsburg emperor was elected, the Bohemian rebels crowned their own king. The clouds of war now appear over Bohemia, and for Jews, war was never good. 
you know, beyond the, the famine and disruption that accompanied any war in, in early modern Europe, the Jews would often suffer expulsions, pogroms, and, and worse. So the Jews of Prague hold their breath and pray that their little quarter would still be around at the end of the war. Two years later, or a year after the election, the fighting had been brought almost to the Jews' doorstep. The battle at White Mountain was only five miles away from the city walls, and the Catholics deal a decisive blow to the Protestant forces, and these rebels now flee to Prague, which means that Prague itself will now be fought over, at which point the Jews prepare for the worst, because the capture of a city means looting, and Jewish quarters were often specifically targeted simply because they are the least protected group. And the old town where the fortified castle is was located near the Jewish district. So the Jews gather in shawls and they fast. They are a vulnerable minority and, you know, soldiers aren't known for their courtesy. And the fighting goes on for an entire day. The Catholics are victorious, but unexpectedly, uh, just as the Habsburg soldiers enter the old quarter, the Emperor Ferdinand orders that no harm be done to the Jews or to their property. In fact, guards were posted um, outside various homes, and although much of the city was invaded, the Jewish quarter was spared. And for the Jews of Prague, this was, you know, nothing short of a miracle. To commemorate this momentous event for all time, they inaugurated the 14th of Cheshvan, the day on which the invasion took place, as a day of celebration. Although, interestingly, the way they did it was a half a day of fasting, followed by a half a day of of rejoicing. And the day includes tefillas written for the event and which were said obviously in shul and they are called slichus leyoim yud dalad cheshvan for the 14th of cheshvan and a copy from 1621 basically the earliest copy still exists in the archives of the jewish museum of prague and i've seen a copy do you think they were copying the fast of esther that we have before Purim? so the, the text of many of these Purims around the world generally started with, you know, Vayahi be May, and it was in the days of whoever the, the king or the ruler was. So, yeah, it was. It was not unconscious, it was conscious. And each time these slichas were reprinted, you not only have the new prayers, but a full introduction of the historical account as a Megillah with the starting with the defenestration in Prague and the Battle of White Mountain, etc. So you're saying that they took a general event, really, and turned it into a Jewish one? In fact, taken a step further, we need to understand sort of why. In other words, what the Jews saw this event as being. In fact, I would say you could credit the Tosavus Yontav with seeing much more than the short term here and now, uh, he and the Jewish leaders of Prague see a bigger picture. The Purim exists in many ways to express loyalty to the victorious Habsburgs because 
the skirmish of those two years of, you know, 1618 to 1620 didn't come to an end at the conclusion of the war in Prague. It actually launched possibly the longest European war, a 30-year war, which lasted from 1618 till 1648, and almost every country was involved, the Spanish, the French, the English, and the Jews needed a protector throughout this period so that for the Jews of Prague to have come out of the war unscathed was clearly unusual, very unusual. But to have their new Catholic rulers show a favorable disposition to them during the war that was nothing short of really miraculous. Was the emperor friendly with any specific Jews, maybe? Emperor Ferdinand? Not per se, no. No, it's a truly miracle. And so much so that having created special tefillis for the day, when the Tosavis Yontif was approached to do so after the massacres of 1648-49 in Poland, the Chmelnitsky uprising, he wrote that the events of 1648 are unfortunately like many in the past, and therefore the previous slichus written for tragedies would serve to honor it. And that means that he saw the events of Prague in 1620 as in some way unique, because he was, or he had really, a perceptive understanding of European politics the larger danger, as he understood, was actually the ongoing political conflict. I mean, he clearly didn't know it would last 30 years, but he sees Bohemia as only one piece of a much bigger puzzle. How would the outsiders understand the Jewish loyalty that's being expressed here? Well, within the Megillah, uh, the Protestant Bohemian nobility are clearly you know, the bad guys, the rebels, when it starts by saying that the emperor left the royal throne in the capital, in Bira, of Prague, and traveled to Vienna, and a group arose of the nobility in Bohemia who conspired against him. And, you know, then they add that they took three of these officials and threw them out of a window, and that the officials ran away because they hadn't been killed. So that's all in the beginning of the Megillah. And in describing the institution of this Yontif, the Prague Purim Chronicle writes that the scholars and leaders of Prague, with the agreement of the head of the Bezdin, established upon themselves the 14th day of the month of Cheshvan. And interestingly, by the way, the, uh, the Av Bezdin was Rabbi Shaya Horowitz, the Shlo HaKodesh, who by then had actually left for Eretz Yisrael, but was still consulted in this matter. Well, I guess in history, we need to understand why things happen, not just the events. That's right, because otherwise we're just seeing a particular narrative Although, interestingly, here there is an added subtle reason, which often also goes under the radar, and that is that, ex that Prague was experiencing social tension within the Kehillah. I don't just mean people not seeing eye to eye. For example, the Tosfus Yontov himself would, over the next decade, become a victim of communal politics and be arrested and sentenced to death by the government because of a slanderer within the Jewish community. It was eventually commuted to exile from Bohemia, which is how he ends up as the, the Rov of Krakow. 
so this event was also an attempt to create social cohesion and potentially legitimate lines of authority, uh, but it only had limited benefit. So that was Purim Prague, 1620. Now to our second Purim, the Jewish community of Casablanca in Morocco. But this is possibly the most unexpected one because it was created in 1942. The assumption in many people's minds is that North Africa escaped the Holocaust, but actually it did exist there. And the only reason the real horrors were prevented was due to time constraints. France surrendered to Germany in 1940, and that included the French colonies in North Africa, which means that the anti-Semitic Vichy regime brought 400,000 North African Jews into the orbit. Anti-Semitic legislation was imposed in Morocco. In Algeria, they had to wear identifying signs on their clothing. Libya sent thousands to concentration camps. In Tunisia, Jews were forced to establish a, a local Judenrat and select uh, 6,000 Jews for labor camps. And hundreds of Jews with foreign citizenship were sent to concentration camps in Europe. And it was clear that worse was going to follow. So Baruch Hashem, they never had enough time to carry out anything more extreme because of the invasion of North Africa by the Allies, which effectively saved the Jews of North Africa from destruction. And to commemorate that event, the uh, Allied invasion, the Jews of Casablanca declared the 2nd of Kislev, which was November 11th, as Hitler Purim and created the Megillah, which you can actually see in Yad Vashem. The first seven chapters deal with the rise of Hitler and occupation, and the final three chapters are dedicated to the history of liberation by the Allies. Yes, I want to ask you two questions. When did these Megillas stop getting read? And why particularly do we every year, I mean, the Purim story that happened so many centuries ago, there's so many times we've been saved. Why is it particularly that story that we read until this very day? So there needs to be more than simply a salvation happening for it to be turned into a Purim. Hence the idea that in Prague, it couldn't just be that, you know, the Jews were under siege. There has to be more to it. Often the miraculous nature of it or the idea that it was a single individual who therefore met his end, his untimely end for having stood up to the Jews, something along those lines. And how long were they read for? Generally, as long as there was an ongoing community in a particular location, city, town, they would carry it on hundreds of years. We mentioned last week about Cairo, that 400 years later, they were still observing it. Right. I suppose that differentiates it between that and the Purim story, which was, I believe, most of the Jews at the time were going to right. be affected as opposed to communities. Also, uh, because it's in the time of prophecy, this is seen as a message for the Jewish people, which is uh, very different to a localized event many right. centuries later. The final Purim story for the series? Is the island of Rhodes in 1840. The specific reason you chose that one? I'm sure there's dozens. 
yes, there probably are 50 or 60, but this one is also unusual because, once again, the reason behind the release of the Druze is often misunderstood or not known of. It is in the detail, often overlooked by most accounts of this Purim, and in there the the happenstance, the Ashe Karcha, Amalek's idea of things just happening by chance, that comes to the fore, which we see as Hashkacha. And without these little details, things would have undoubtedly turned out very differently. A Jewish community existed in Rhodes during the, the Greek area of the Second Temple of Baishani. Uh, we have documents over 2,000 years old. And under Ottoman rule, Rhodes became an important center, a home to famous rabbis. And by the 19th century, the wealthier Jews were merchants, and many others were small shopkeepers, artisans, uh, fishermen. And the numbers at that time, somewhere between three to 4,000. Now, in the Middle East in general, the blood libel was not really part of the landscape. It wasn't a Muslim thing, it was Christian. But after the Ottomans conquered the Byzantine countries, uh, Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, so Greek Christian communities were often the source of these murder charges against the Jews, generally not because of religious fervor, but linked often to social or economic tension. I mean, even in Odessa, the pogroms in the late 19th century would be linked to the Greek Christians living there. And I mean, merchants, not church figures. So in Rhodes, Elias Kalimati, a local Jew, represents the business interests of uh, Joel Davis, a Jewish businessman based in London. Davis was increasing his share in the very profitable sponge exports from the island, and he was a major business rival of the European consuls based there, who beyond their political roles were often involved in business. They tried and failed to ruin Davis by falsely reporting to the authorities that he'd been evading taxes. So they turned to a tried and tested method of getting rid of him by taking an opportunity to threaten the whole Jewish community and eliminate their competitor by uh, creating an explosion of anti-Semitism amongst the locals. Lovely people, really. <laughs> and on February 17th in 1840, a boy from a Greek Orthodox family went for a walk, doesn't come back. The next day, his mother reports the disappearance to the Ottoman authorities, and the island's governor, Yusuf Pasha, ordered a search, but came back empty-handed. The European consuls pressed the governor to solve the case, and the Greek Christian population of Rhodes, by this time, had no doubts that the boy had been murdered by the Jews for ritual purposes. So Ottoman authorities searched the Jewish quarter, but 
obviously they nothing you know nothing turns up a few days later two greek women say that they've seen the boy walking towards the city accompanied by four jews and one of them was eliakim stamboli he is arrested questioned and subjected to 500 blows of the bastinado as a form of torture and then again in february the 23rd he is interrogated and this time he's tortured in the presence of outsiders the governor is there the greek archbishop is there and many of the european consuls in fact the jews of rhodes report that stamboli was almost reduced to the point of death under torture he confesses to the murder charge and he incriminates other jews at which point at the instigation of the greek clergy and european consuls the governor yusupasha blockaded the jewish quarter and this takes place over purim the inhabitants could not get food or fresh water into the area and at the same time the jews perceive an attempt and they prevent an attempt to smuggle a dead body into the jewish quarter now what's interesting here is that the muslim authorities weren't so keen on pursuing this accusation in fact the muslim official in charge of the blockade um, was discovered um, smuggling bread to the imprisoned jewish residents and at the insistence of the british consul he was dismissed from service why were they being so friendly because they had been living side by side for quite a while and they had positive links unlike the christians who were rivals in trade it, it came from the economics of it came the from greed yeah so the governor arrests eight jews based on the confession including the chief rabbi and they are tortured by being suspended from hooks in the ceiling and this was all carried out in the presence of these european consuls one of the people lost consciousness after six hours and the rabbi is kept there for two days until he undergoes a hemorrhage now neither of those two confessed and they were both released after a few days but the other six Jews remain in prison however in the first days of the blockade of the jewish quarter somebody manages to smuggle a letter out to the jewish leadership in constantinople and as a result when this becomes known the governor of Rhodes, under pressure sends a request to constantinople asking for further instruction meanwhile in constantinople itself when the jewish community leadership receive this letter they use their connections with high-ranking ottoman officials to try and influence the case uh, the most influential of these jews was uh, abraham de commando the community leaders realized that a retrial on the island wouldn't help and that only the government's direct intervention will 
save the Rhodian Jews, and therefore they need something to change in the way justice is being carried out. And eventually, they get the Ottoman government to order Yusuf Pasha, the, uh, the governor, to send to the capital city three Orthodox Christians and three Jews to testify before the highest court of the empire. The charges are therefore eventually dismissed against the Jews after a proper investigation. Yusuf Pasha is dismissed from his post as the governor of Rhodes, and the Jews in prison were released. And this obviously is the impetus behind creating Purim of Rhodes. Doesn't sound like a massive uh, however, odd miracle. <laughs> the very fact that there was any type of interest in an investigation in the capital city of an empire was very unusual at the time and is due not to the Jews, but to a very fortuitous set of events. In the 1830s, the Ottoman Empire was already weak and they now depended much more on the European powers who in turn forced the Ottoman Empire to accept new laws internally so that they would, the way the quote goes, they would synchronize Ottoman policy with European international order. In other words, they had to uh, bring themselves up to speed on how law and justice should be carried out. The process started in November 1839, just four months before the whole Rhodes episode, with a new decree about how local governors should now be policed going forwards. And it brought to the fore politicians who were political reformers within the empire. They now came into power. The old ways of carrying out justice, you know, the bakshish, needed changing as far as the Western government saw it. Now, evidence in the archive shows that had it not been for the intervention of these Ottoman reformers, events of the island would have been handled on the island. It would never have gone beyond that. And therefore, the idea that the Jews would have been exonerated was far from obvious. But these new politicians are persuaded by the Jewish leaders in Constantinople that the Rhodes crisis was a perfect opportunity for the government to show the rest of Europe that it's taking justice seriously and as an opportunity to warn local provincial officials against, you know, insubordination. Even the process of calling community delegates from the provinces to the capital, you know, three Christians and three Jews, was part of the new policy which curtails the power of local governors. In fact, during the investigation in Constantinople, the governor is charged with anti-Reformation behavior, which means that the trial was far less about freeing the Jews and far more about showing the world that, you know, democratic law exists in the Ottoman Empire. And that's why it's handled by the Supreme Council, the highest court of the land. It's for visibility. And when the ruling is handed down, 
he is dismissed from his post as governor of Rhodes because, and I quote, he had permitted procedures to be employed against the Jews, which are not authorized by the law and which are expressly forbidden by the new decrees of 3rd November. So the hearing about the Rhodes affair is the first trial of a governor conducted by this central council post the creation of this new penal code. And that is why on the sort of eve of the trial, Camondo, who obviously had reliable sources of information in government, can assure Montefiore that the government and the council are rather inclined in the Jews' favour. Montefiore himself was at that very time dealing with the infamous blood libel in Damascus. And that means that, as Commander reports it, the trial was basically a foregone conclusion and allowed the Jews to achieve not only an acquittal, but a very speedy one. So I guess the miraculous aspect, which deserving of a Megillah, was the fact that it just so happened that the first opportunity of this law being put into practice was for the benefit of the Jews, really. Yeah, this idea of Ashe Korachod, you know, that word that comes up over and over again in the Megillah and when dealing with Amalek initially, that just happens, it was by chance, that element is, is seen here. And that is often not noticed in the general accounts of the Rhodes Purim. It's Ashkocha to get rid of a, you know, a local homon. The disturbing aspect of this affair, which remains in place even afterwards, is not the governor, but the behavior of the European consuls, who, you know, after all, represented democratic countries. Uh, they're all Christian, but they were all virulently anti-Jewish. They supported the claims of the blood libel. They were present when the tortures were carried out. And one assumes that their descendants were no doubt the quislings in each European country who would help the Nazis. Back home, the interestingly, the, the British Foreign Minister, Palmerston, wrote an indignant letter to the British consul on Rhodes, who was called uh, Wilkinson, and I, I will quote the part of the letter that's germane. His Majesty's government cannot possibly believe it to be true that the suspected Jews were put to the torture at the instigation of the European consuls. Still less that a British consul should be a party to an act so directly in opposition to the principles and sentiments which ought to distinguish a British agent. So clearly on the side of the Jews there and, and, and quite horrified. Um, one last part to this. We mentioned that Moses Montefiore was dealing with another blood libel at the time of even greater proportions because it affected an even larger population in, in Damascus. Now, when both of these blood libels were put to bed, he got the Sultan to issue a ruling that the blood libel was an entirely fictitious accusation with, with no basis. By coincidence, it was granted to the Jews of Rhodes on the 14th of Adar Purim, which means that both the initial imprisonment of the Jews in this affair and the final outcome happen on Purim in different years. And that's why 
Purim of Rhodes isn't actually a separate day in the calendar. It is a double celebration on the day of Purim itself with, you know, special prayers inserted into the davening beyond those that are there for Purim itself. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. I guess this Purim, our listeners will find the Megillah even more meaningful, not just something that happened centuries ago, but something that repeatedly happened throughout history, even to less than 100 years ago. Yep. So that's complete. Do we have a plan what to do next? The next series? Yes, we are going to do a three-part series on 16th century Poland, how they lived, and some of the personalities. Great. Looking forward. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. Thank you.